0: What's stopping you, 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 you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN What's stopping?
1: I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. One eight
2: three three two eight eight three nine
3: eight six. 833 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? You, 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 you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Do you have a question? I'm talking to you. Do you have a question about the Catholic faith and that you're just trying to, having a terrible time trying to find a straight answer? Here's what the Catholic Church actually teaches... Well, we are here for you. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, and I know we've got a lot of listeners literally all over the world. That's why they call it the Global Catholic Network. Well, we have a special phone number just for you. Dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. You can always send us an email 24-7, the address for that, ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Beery, our producer. Matt Gabinski is our phone screener. Also, uh, Jeff Burson handling social media for us. If you have a question uh, perhaps you'd like to pose via YouTube or Facebook, We can handle that. Just put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see it. He'll send it to us, and off to the races we go. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Glad to hear that. Interesting question here from Ray in Knoxville, Tennessee. Dr. Anders, can you help me wrap my brain around how Protestants who practice Sola Scriptura can, on the one hand, say they only believe what's written in Scripture, But on the other hand, they say Catholics are wrong. (laughs) The original Catholics wrote the letters that Catholics later canonized into the Bible. How can you say, I only believe the Bible, but Catholics are just wrong? Plus, every time I ask a Protestant this question... They just start quoting scriptures at me that have nothing to do with the question. Thanks, Ray, in Knoxville.
4: Yeah, thanks, Ray. I appreciate the question. So there are an awful lot of inconsistencies and incoherences built into Protestant dogmatics, which is one of the reasons that I stopped being Protestant. But I'll tell you how I would have answered that question back when I was a Protestant. Uh, So with respect to the doctrine of the Bible— but the, honestly, there, there is no good argument that a Protestant can give for why the Bible should be regarded as the rule of faith. This is, this is the, the best that they can do. I'm going to give you what, essentially the Protestant position, but I don't think it works. They would say, all right, so when I read the Bible, uh, I feel sufficiently moved by it to the pursuit of God or holiness or love of Christ or, 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 or there's some kind of religious response to the Scriptures that, uh, that is sufficient to establish to me that they are in fact divinely inspired. Calvin, John Calvin would refer to this as the witness of the Holy Spirit, that some way or another the engagement with the Bible is self-attesting, that, uh, that, that you can just know that you know that the Bible is God's Word just by engaging it. And th- that alone doesn't get you to the Doctrine of Sola Scriptura. If it worked, which I don't think it does, it would get you at best to the Doctrine of Inspiration. Well, every Catholic believes in the inspiration of the Bible, we just don't think that God gave us the Bible to be the church's rule of faith, the kind of uh, sort of bedrock constitutional document that defines everything Christians are to believe or to do. We don't think it has that status. It is inspired, but does not not for that reason. Um, so Protestants try to give an argument for inspiration, and then here's the move that they make. They say, well, the Bible's God's Word. It's inspired Scripture. It's inerrant. It's infallible. Um, and, and nothing else has that status. Well, that's just an assertion. That's just an assertion. Nothing else has that status. And we need a rule of faith. We we need something to base our Christian life on. So since the Bible is the only thing around that has the status of being inspired and inerrant, it just must be the Bible. It's a kind of inference from the doctrine of inspiration. Mm-hmm. But uh, but that's not a rational inference. Because, I mean, it's perfectly possible to have an inspired document without God intending it to be the rule of faith. And it's very hard to hold that view when Jesus explicitly mentions a different rule of faith. When Christ made provision for handing on the Christian faith, he didn't say, go consult the Bible. He said to the apostles, go make disciples and teach everything I've commanded you, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. Christ gave us the principle of the teaching church as our rule of faith, not the Bible alone. So even the, even the Protestant doctrine of the Bible uh, I think is is incoherent, is in, inconsistent, it's self-contradictory because the Bible teaches a different rule of faith, It doesn't teach its own authority as the where the buck stops in in theology and the Christian life. Uh, but in terms of why a Protestant who believes in the doctrine of Sola Scriptura, why would they, on the basis of that of that principle, reject Catholicism? Well, it would be because allegedly, and this is what they would allege, they would allege that Protest- that Catholic doctrine and practice, contradicts some expressed teaching of the Bible. Now I don't think that's true. I don't think Catholicism contradicts the Bible, but that's the case that the Protestant apologist tries to make. And most importantly, they would try to attack the the Catholic understanding of the nature of salvation. Protestants have an idiosyncratic interpretation of the letters of St. Paul, particular Romans and Galatians. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that they used to attempt to justify Luther's doctrine of justification by faith alone, and since that's a doctrine that the Catholic Church rejects, they would say, aha, see here are Catholics rejecting the teaching of the Bible, therefore Catholics have to be wrong. Now, I, I don't think their exegesis is good, I think they've misread the Bible, but that's that's the way they argue. They would also point to other Catholic practices that uh, that they might claim not to find in the Bible, um, you know, things like devotion to the saints and their relics, or uh, the you know, elements of the Catholic hierarchy or liturgy, and they would say, we don't find these things in Scripture, therefore the Catholics are doing unscriptural things. That's mm. the way the argument proceeds, and if you listen to this show enough, you'll hear me refute every one of those <laughs> claims.
3: Very good. Ray, thanks so much for your email. Here's a quick one from Rita in Reading, PA. Dr. Andrews of the The Gospels often mention Jesus and his disciples casting out demons. Was demonic possession more prevalent in those days? Why don't we hear about it today? Or is it still uh, prevalent, but we call it something else?
4: Yeah, thanks. I I, I appreciate the question. I really have absolutely no way to measure the prevalence of demonic possession, either in antiquity or the present day. All right. Um, I I do think it's it's, uh, unambiguously the case that some... periods of history have blamed demonic possession for things that are not caused by demons. Mm -hmm. That continues to happen today. One of the reasons that the church keeps her list of exorcists secret, we do have exorcists, but we don't hang them out on billboards, is so that every Tom, Dick, and Harry who wants an exorcism won't come pounding on their door, because most people don't need them.
3: Yeah, Rita, thanks so much uh, for your email. She also says, by the way, love your show. I watch it on YouTube every night. Oh, thank you. Very nice. Appreciate that, Rita. Hey, the phone lines are open for you. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-EWTN, call to communion on this Thursday afternoon. Stay with us. It's called to communion on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number, if you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-EWTN, that's 833 833- 288-3986, a most excellent time to call right now while there are lines open. And while there are lines open, let me tell you about something beautiful now available from EWTN's religious catalog. It is the World Peace Rosary With Queen of Peace Centerpiece, exclusive uh, from Gorelli Design Studio, created in conjunction with us here at EWTN. It's a rosary that speaks of the peace that only comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. The World Peace Rosary with Queen of Peace Centerpiece features the six inhabitant continents of the world displayed around Jesus crucified who is, of course, the Prince of Peace. On the back of the crucifix, a verse from Holy Scripture that reads, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. That's according, according to uh, Matt 5:9, Matthew 5.9, as we uh, talk about uh, the uh, feast day of St. Matthew today. Also in the center of the rosary, Mary, Queen of Peace, watching over the world, inviting and encouraging prayer. On the back of the centerpiece, the words, Queen of Peace. These beads are smooth, round, clear glass with miraculous metals for the Our Fathers in antique bronze, like the crucifix and the centerpiece. 21 inches long when it's laid out flat. It comes in a white gift box. Can you imagine this as a gift for someone you love, maybe for yourself, maybe uh, stick it in the closet for a Christmas gift? Wow. Check it out. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. Uh, do check it out. EWTNRC.com. We're going to get to the phones in just a moment here at 833-288-EWTN. Uh, right now, though, there was a call that came in overnight last night on the EWTN listener comment line.
1: Yeah, hi, my name is Clay. Uh, I'm from Cheyenne, Wyoming. Uh, I'm an Episcopal, so I'm not Catholic. Uh, my question is, what exactly gives the Catholic priest this intermediary uh, power, so to speak, that other factions of Christianity don't have. Because, you know, I came to know Christ, and my life changed 100% through Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I could not 100% disagree more uh, that, I didn't, that I did not have a very powerful connection to God as a result of a spiritual experience, as a result of taking the steps through Alcoholics Anonymous. And my, my question there is, exactly what gives the Catholic priest that power? Because I absolutely do feel God And uh, I've noticed that a a very human problem, that no human power has been able to stop in my life, was taken away.
4: Okay. Yeah, I really profoundly appreciate the question, although it is based on a misunderstanding of the Catholic position. The Catholic Church does not teach (coughs) that the mediation of the priest is the only mediation. We don't say that. Uh, in fact, St. Bonaventure, who's one of our key theologians, a doctor of the Church, once wrote that the world, meaning the whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle, the world is a ladder ascending to God. And with eyes properly attuned, with heart properly attuned, it is possible to find the presence of God everywhere and in anything, right? And so, the, of course, the Catholic Church recognizes and celebrates the fact that you can— in a manner of speaking, connect with God through the medium of the 12 steps and the support of a a recovery community. These kinds of things are good. The Church doesn't oppose them. She's in favor of them and does not say, never says, that you can't meet God in those kinds of places. So thanks be to God for your sobriety. Thank you for Alcoholics Anonymous helping you. Uh, Don't want to say anything of the kind. Uh, that, that that's a bad thing or that you can't meet God there. No, 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 no. That's a total misunderstanding of the Catholic point of view.
3: In fact, right. your parish uh, right here in Birmingham uh, hosts Alcoholics Anonymous uh, every week, I believe. That's that's right. So yeah. there are a lot of Catholic
4: parishes that, that play host to Alcoholics Anonymous. Yep. That's to be sure. There's also a ministry called Catholics in Recovery, which is a Catholic 12-step program, but it's based on the 12 steps of Alcoholics sure, Anonymous. Sure. So, so yeah, that's, that's a great thing. Now, um, so but here's the thing with the catholic priesthood and not the priesthood only but with all the sacraments of the catholic church so the catholic position is that christ has put into the world some tangible objective signs to which there is a promise of divine assistance where if you access these signs that they will make present to you in a unique way a saving encounter with christ that is different from the kind of saving encounter that you might have through something like Alcoholics Anonymous, or for that matter, another religious tradition. Um, because, see, the person of Jesus, uh, the Incarnation itself, actually, I should say, is a, is a very special mode of the Divine Presence. So, yes, I can find God in a rock or a tree or a beautiful lake, or, or a, a helpful practice of uh, self-discovery and self-discipline. All that's true. All right. But God becoming man is something of an entirely different order, right? This is, this is the clearest manifestation of God in history, and the fact of the Incarnation fundamentally changed the whole course and tenor of human life. And I won't make the case for that right now, but any, any study of human history will let you see how the presence of Christ in the world has radically transformed human consciousness in a way that mere nature could not, right? And the Catholic Church, the priesthood of the Catholic Church, and the sacraments of the Catholic Church, are a kind of extend, a kind of an extension, a sort of continuation, of the presence of Christ via the incarnation, insofar as Jesus commissioned specific individuals with a mission to preach the
3: gospel, to share His teaching, and to manifest His presence through the sacraments. And thank you so much uh, for your call uh, that we received overnight on our EWTN listener comment line. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones live at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Gil, a first-time listener in Grand Rapids, listening on the great Holy Family Radio. Hello, Gil. What's on your mind today, sir?
2: Well, um, I just wanted to make a comment uh, regarding uh, the Bible. Uh, I am a, a proud Protestant. And um very respectful of all religions and uh I'll agree to disagree with both of you hope you guys do the same too I'm sure you will <laughs> anyway um my question um or, or my my comment on the bible is uh as a Protestant we look at the bible more as a um like your car manual Um, you know, um you, you you know, I and I and I do go to it every day. Um, but we use it as a guide or, you know, an instruction booklet, if you will.
4: Um yeah, I really profoundly appreciate that comment. And in fact, I often have occasion on the show to distinguish the way Catholics look at the Bible from the way Protestants look at the Bible and Tom, you've heard me say it. I have often made exactly this illustration. I've said Protestants regard the Bible like the user's manual in their car. So it's it's delightful to have a Protestant call up and use that exact same metaphor yeah. to describe to describe their approach to the Bible. That is sort of like a user's manual in the Christian life, right? Mm-hmm. I understand very well that that is the Protestant position. It's a position that I used to hold back when I was a Protestant. And there were several things that made me personally change my mind. One of them was the fact that the Bible itself never references itself in this way. So you, you won't find any passage of the Bible that says, if you need a user's manual for the Christian life, please regard the scriptures. And in fact, the discrete texts of the Bible, the individual books, whether Matthew, Mark, Luke, Genesis, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you name it, The discrete books of the Bible show no indication, no awareness that they are parts of something that we might call a canon or a list of biblical books that is to function as a kind of comprehensive guide or user's manual on the Christian life. So the idea that this collection of books, particularly the 66 books that Protestants have gathered together, that this particular collection of books is to function in this way. Is something that you don't get from the Bible itself, but it's a conception of the Scriptures that is imposed upon the collection from the outside. And when you, when you look at what, where does that idea historically come from, basically it emerges out of the Protestant Reformation. I mean, it has antecedents, but the, the, the form of the doctrine, as we now have received it, hmm. is the work of the Protestant Reformers. It's not a doctrine that Scripture itself produces, but it's one that's imposed upon it in particular by Martin Luther at the Leipzig debate with John Eck in 1519. And so the doctrine of the Bible doesn't confirm, the doctrine of the Bible regarding itself doesn't actually confirm this view of the Bible. When I look at what Scripture actually says, I mean, read the text, uh, you'll find that most of the documents are written as occasional documents. So, you know, St. Paul will write a letter to the church in Rome on the occasion of his visit to the church in Rome, and he writes about things that are pertinent to that particular audience. Same with his letter to the Corinthians or to the Galatians. Um, You know, uh, obviously the Old Testament prophets situate themselves very much in their time and place they reference contemporary kings and 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 characters and movements and political concerns that are germane to their own situation and interests and um and none of them begins with hey this is chapter 32 in the comprehensive user's manual on the christian life right and so you know i when i was a protestant i began to ask myself the question why do i think of the bible in this way Why do I think it's the rule of faith for the church? And when, as soon as I put the question to myself, I realized, well, the reason I think this way is that's what I was taught. It's what my parents told me. It's what my pastors told me. Everyone that I know who's a Christian looks at it this way. In other words, it's something that I inherited from the tradition of my Protestant church. Now, historically, I was always told by Protestants that the Bible trumps tradition. And so I just applied that rule to my own doctrine. If the Bible trumps tradition, then it has to trump the tradition of Protestantism that regards the Bible as the rule of faith. So what what rule of faith does Scripture suggest? Is there anything in the Bible about how we are to discern the content of Christian faith? And what I found was that Christ had made a specific provision for handing on the Christian faith other than the Bible. In Matthew 28, he appointed 11 individuals and said, go forth into all nations and make disciples and teach everything I've commanded you. Now, what Christ commanded was oral tradition. He didn't write down his words. And he made these statements before there was any Bible written. And then promised, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And whoever hears you hears me. And whoever rejects you rejects me. In other words, Christ authorized specific individuals with a specific authority to teach with authority and he promised to guarantee their words until all eternity, and the gates of hell would not prevail against them. That's pretty much what the Catholic Church thinks. The Catholic Church thinks that Christ sent out the apostles and their successors, the bishops, to authoritatively teach the faith, and that he promised his divine assistance. And one of the things that the Catholic bishops did historically was gather together a list of writings that they declared to be Holy Scripture and inspired by God, and central to the church's liturgical uh, theological and prayer life called the Bible, and so the reason we even have the Bible that we have, the reason the Protestant Church has the Bible that we, that it has, is because Catholic tradition and Catholic authority compiled it and promulgated it to the world
3: as the Word of God. Jagil uh, is that helpful for you, sir?
4: I've
2: been trying to. I, I'm I'm sorry. You guys like mute the callers when you call in because I've been I've been trying to uh, interject things, and... and, and interject! Uh, I mean,
3: interject away! Now is your time for interjection. Go right ahead. Okay, because I was—I I,
2: I, to be honest with you—I missed most of what you were saying because I was trying to talk, and I, I don't know if you guys can't hear me or what.
4: No, but, we we, we and, can't. We don't have a go back and forth when I'm when I'm speaking because it, it it makes for bad signal in the radio. So go ahead and have your say.
2: Okay. Well, all you know, all sixty-six Bibles, as you said, uh, that the Protestants. Uh, believe or canonized. Um, they're all separate books, yeah. so they're not. They're they're not going to say that you know refer to the Bible. Of course because not, because the Bible didn't ex- exist. Right, right. But they are. They are a manual. Um, so how do you know, you know that uh, to, to help? You. How do I know that? Yeah, because I've
4: read it. And and do they do they suggest about themselves that they are to be read comprehensively as a manual?
2: You no know, but they they do you know i mean you, you think about the lord's prayer you know jesus said you should pray like this we don't have to you know he he, he was telling us showing us if you will in, in a manual speaking to us saying you know our, our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name so they definitely give instruction
4: in. there's there's no doubt that the bible provides instruction on the christian life that's really not an issue between Protestants and Catholics. The issue, at Pro- it, it, what's at issue between Protestants and Catholics, is whether the Bible in total is a comprehensive and sufficient guide to the Christian life. There's no question that it is a guide of a sort, sure, but is it is it a comprehensive and sufficient guide?
2: I believe so. Otherwise, we wouldn't have it. I
4: uh, mean the Bible you, is, you, you wouldn't the, have the, the Bible.
2: Bible? The, we wouldn't have the Bible. The Bible is, is, is the number one best-selling book every year, and it has been since they started keeping Okay, let, counting let me that.
4: respond to that. So the, the claim that if the Bible were not a comprehensive and sufficient guide to the Christian life, then we wouldn't possess it. I'm not sure how that follows, right? Because, see, uh, the Catholic Church position is that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and it does provide guidance on the Christian life. But there are many things that it does not do. There are questions about the Christian faith and life that it does not answer. And the reason it doesn't answer them is that God did not intend for the Bible to be a comprehensive guide to the Christian life. So you know, one obvious example would be, which books belong in the Bible? That's a point of Christian doctrine, necessary to know, and the Bible itself doesn't answer it. You have to go to sacred tradition for the answer to that question.
3: Appreciate the dialogue, uh, Gil, and uh, do call us back another time. Thank you so much for your call. In a moment, uh, we'll get to more phone calls and uh, maybe yours, too. 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. Thanks for joining us for the Thursday edition of Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Busy phones today. If a line does become available, your number is 833-288-EWTN. Let's go now to Chris in Illinois, listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Chris, what's on your mind today?
0: Hi, um, I just talked to your screener, gave me some really good tips and advice, but I recently found the book Uh, Imitation of Christ, it was packed away in something, and it had my name in it, so I think it was gifted to me, and it's my handwriting when I was just learning to write cursive, so I I believe somebody probably gave it to me as Uh, a gift, uh but it is so in-depth and so adult that I can't imagine that in third grade, that anybody could have comprehended it. And I'm, so I picked it up. I'm trying to read it. it it's so full of such com- complex, but profound information that I'm afraid I'm not going to remember any of it because it's just one powerful sentence after another i just wanted to know what is the best way
4: to read this book yeah thanks i really appreciate the question so the imitation of christ often ascribed to thomas a. Kempis in the 15th century is a classic of catholic devotional literature and uh it's highly regarded by by many authorities in the church i think the way to read it is in pieces and meditatively you're not going to sit down and read it to cover to cover like you would some normal piece of nonfiction where, you know, there's a thesis and an argument, and you're just trying to follow it to the conclusion. That's, that's not the way this book works. So, you know, I just pulled up chapter 7 at random here uh, of fleeing from vain hope and pride, right? Well, I mean, that a paragraph a day would be enough to contemplate the teaching and then try to put it into effect. So you're, you're not going to exhaust the book in terms of your spiritual practice. I mean, you can read the text cover to cover, but if you really try to live by it, well, that's going to take a lot more uh, chewing
3: on, a good bit more mastication and, uh, and self-examination to put that into practice. Yeah, so take your time. Don't worry about it, Chris. Thanks so much for your call. Let's go to Jim now in Portland, listening on the great Modern Day Radio. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today, sir?
5: Um, I, uh
1: question is regard to King David of the uh, Old Testament. And I, I I, think I've got kind of a problem with him. Um, there's a part where he says, uh, against you, O Lord, have I sinned, you know. And, uh, O Lord, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. And I figure if I had been born 3,000 years ago, I could have been Uriah the Hittite. I, I kind of don't trust him. I think he indulged in sophistry. He's loath to admit uh, he'll admit sins to, about God, but not about uh, uh, Uriah and Bathsheba, and for that matter, Shimei. I think, and um, it's just uh, there's a, a certain arrogance that uh, I, uh, I I've got a little bit of contempt for, actually.
4: Yeah, sure. I really appreciate that. So I, I agree with you, and I have a, I have a few qualifications to add. One is that the biblical account. Of David's repentance uh, is, of course, more comprehensive than Psalm 51. Uh, we really find the story in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And when Nathan the prophet confronts David, and he confronts him by way of a parable, he tells him the story of a rich man who took a poor man's one blessed, lovely ewe and ate him, while the rich man had a whole flock of sheep. <clears throat> and, uh, and when David hears the story, and he thinks it's an actual history, he doesn't realize that this is a parable against him. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. All right? so it's clear that David recognizes that the crime is a crime against a poor man. He doesn't construe this as merely a form of blasphemy, but as an offense against the dignity of another human being. All right? And uh, <clears throat> now, when he when he writes pens his psalm of repentance, however, it is, Against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. So how are we to construe that? Is it that, uh, you know, that David is a narcissist who's trying to escape personal responsibility and construe the whole thing as an act of impiety? I I don't think that's the best way to read it. Um, The fact of the matter is, in the Hebrew tradition and the Christian tradition, that acts of indignity towards our fellow man are acts of impiety because our fellow human beings are made in the likeness and image of God, right? And, and if we read this in light of, say, the modern Catholic theology, um, you know, when you go to, the, to confession, you confess that you have done this or that bad thing. We usually say, you know, um, uh, I, you know I'm sorry because I, I fear the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, but mostly because I have offended you, my God, whom I ought to love above all things. And the the idea that loving God above all things is somehow in competition with um, the, the love of my neighbor is a false understanding. Like we only love God um, insofar as we recognize God in the dignity of our neighbor and our social duties, right? And so the way I personally try to live out that teaching of loving God above all things is that there is a there is an there's an order of justice and charity in the universe uh, that corresponds to my best nature. And to love God above all things means that I, I don't operate in a kind of craven attitude of just save me from hell, but I genuinely want to be conformed to the rational and loving principle that God put in the nature of all things, right? And so it, it, you can't do it apart from a genuine concern for, for the common good and the welfare of your, uh, of your fellow man. Now, I will acknowledge to you that uh, ancient Hebrew religion, as uh, we find it in the Old Testament, does not represent uh, the height of human ethical behavior. Jesus did not think that. He he acknowledges that there are aspects of the Mosaic legislation and of Hebrew society uh, that were a kind of condescension to human weakness, that, that are only eliminated with the Incarnation and the full presentation of the ethical truth of the human person in Christ. Um, That's the way St. Paul reads it. That's the way Christ reads it. St. Irenaeus of Lyon said that the reason the Incarnation had to take place when it did was because it was necessary for the human race to become habituated to the divine logos, that principle of rationality that, that indwells every person and enables them to know the natural law and seek the common good of their neighbor. That there was a kind of pedagogy, a kind of tutelage of the human race uh, within and outside of Hebrew society to prepare them for the arrival of, uh, of of the Christ, so we don't we don't have to look at the narratives of the Old Testament and try to find out. Okay, what's you know, if if something smells fishy to you,
3: it's okay to call it fishy, right? Jesus did too. Yeah. Jim, thanks so much for your call from Portland. Glad to hear from you today here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Let's go now to John, a first-time caller in New Jersey, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hey there, John, what's on your mind today, sir?
1: Oh, thank you. I was just wondering, Dr. Anders, about the Old Testament uh,
5: scriptural uh, readings that say that uh, the, the Jews are my chosen people. And it emphasizes that. And how is it that that covenant was broken, in a sense, when, when our Lord came and when they were no longer, in a sense, the chosen people? Yeah,
4: yeah. thanks. Right. I really appreciate the question. So let's make a couple of distinctions. One is that when, when you use the word Jew today, you may have in mind the synagogue down the street from your house and the modern practice of rabbinic Judaism. And while the Catholic Church regards that modern religion of Judaism with affection, and there's obviously an affinity between Judaism and Christianity, um, it would be false to assume that God made a covenant with, say, modern rabbinic Judaism as you find it down the street. God made a covenant with Abraham, who was emphatically not a Jew, Right? I mean, Jew means, uh, etymologically, someone who lives in the geographic region of Judea. Right, right. Abraham count came from Chaldea, <clears throat> and uh, God made a covenant with him and his progeny, who would eventually come to inhabit the land that was once called Canaan that became Israel, that was then divided in half between a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. And the wh- what theological co- continuity there is in the world today with modern Judaism comes from that southern kingdom of Judah, right? So just, just to clarify, you know, if you're thinking of God as having fidelity to, say, one religious tradition and then shifting it to another, that's, that's not the way it happened. That's not the way the Catholic Church construes it. It's not the what the Bible says, right? That, that would be anachronistic to view it that way. God made a covenant with Abraham. It is the emphatic teaching of the Catholic Church and of the New Testament that God's covenant with Abraham has not been abrogated. In fact, that is the message of the book of Romans in the New Testament, that God's promise to Abraham, Abraham uh, has not been revoked, has not been revoked. And Paul himself is a Hebrew, Paul who's writing the letter and who is an apostle of the Christian church, and he points to his own case, to, to, to himself, to Paul, as uh, as proof of the fact that God had maintained fidelity to the descendants of Abraham. And the the... The big secret in the first century, from Paul's point of view, was not that God rejected the children of Abraham, but that he admitted Gentiles to the covenant simply by virtue of their faith in Christ. And so that's that's the way the Church understands it. God never violated his covenant to Abraham. He expanded it to include Gentiles who were not
3: ethnically children of Abraham. John, great question. Thanks so much for your call today. Call to Communion here on EWTN. Hey, be sure to join us tonight for The World Over with Raymond Arroyo. Uh, That'll be tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN radio and television. Tonight, Raymond welcomes Father Gerald Murray and Robert Royal. They'll be discussing news from the Vatican. Also, Robert Yunanwe, he is the CEO of Goya Foods, and he'll be sharing how their new initiative there called Goya Cares how It's Battling Child Trafficking. Very, very important show. Check it out tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern, The World Over with Raymond Arroyo on EWTN Radio and Television. Back to the phones now. We're trying to get to as many calls as we can today. Here's James in Memphis, first-time caller listening on SiriusXM, Channel 130. James, what's on your mind today, sir?
5: Hi, guys. Thank you for uh, taking my call. Appreciate it. Um so earlier in the week, I, I met a, a nice young man and I overheard him evangelizing and trying to uh, recruit a group of homeless people kind of into the faith. And, and I, I kind of listened from a little bit of a distance and then had a conversation with him afterwards. And, and we had a great time talking and, and we were discussing some of the differences in our faith. And, and I told him about the Catholic belief in the perpetual virginity of the, the Blessed Mother. And he said to me, he's like, well, there's a passage which directly contradicts that. I said, okay, what are you talking about? He pulled out his uh, Bible on his phone and read me Matthew 1.25, which is a slightly different translation from the Catholic Bible, and it says, uh, 25 says, referring to Joseph, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. And then in the Catholic Bible, it says, but knew her not until... She had born a son, and he called his name Jesus. So I'm familiar with a lot of the your rebuttals, mainly, and, and further context explanation. And some Protestant claims that, that Mary had other children, uh, but I have not referenced this text before. And my, my question is, if you can e- expand on that a little bit, saying, knew her not until she had been born, and why they may have a different translation.
4: All right, yeah, thank you. So I'm actually pulling the text up right now. Um, and let's see. Yep. Okay. I'm looking at the Greek text. Um, um, is the Greek word, which, which means to know. Okay. Right. And so it is a, it's a metaphor, obviously. It's a, it's a, a it's a, 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 euphemism for sexual relations. Sure. Okay. And the, so the key word in the text is not know. And they, they translate it consummate, but regardless, that's not the key issue. The key issue is the until. And what some Protestant apologists will want to suggest is that the presence of the word until suggests that after the terminus ad quim, that, you know, after the parturition of Christ, that Joseph then went and consummated the marriage with the Blessed Virgin Mary. The problem with that assumption is that it assumes that the Greek preposition heos which is the word translated u- as until, mm-hmm. always suggests that after the terminus ad quim, um, the point at which, uh, that the state of affairs under consideration necessarily changes. And so if she was a virgin until, then obviously she must have stopped being a virgin after the until. Well, that's not true of the Greek preposition heos. That might be implied by the English preposition until, but it's not the case with the with the Greek preposition heos. Let me give you a, a, another example in the New Testament where that's clearly the case. Acts two thirty four translates the Psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until heos, I make your enemies a footstool for you. Now, if you apply the very same exegetical principle that your new friend has applied, you would have to conclude that the Son of God no longer sits at the right hand of God. Because the text says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Well, after that, according to your friend's exegesis, Christ gets booted out of the right hand of God. (laughs) Well, that's absurd. Of course. That's absurd. Until just means, here is the state of affairs that pertains for the period under consideration. And and all that Matthew is trying to communicate in chapter 1 is that Jesus was born of a virgin. That's that's what he intends to communicate. He's not offering
3: an opinion on the conjugal relations of Mary and Joseph after that fact. Okay. James, we hope that's helpful. Thanks for your call. Here's Tom now in Oklahoma, listening on the great Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Hello, Tom. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, hi.
5: I wanted to, to understand a little bit more about the concept of Catholics-only cemeteries. Uh, in, the, in my hometown, it's majority Protestant, and there's a large uh, city cemetery, uh, and, uh, but the, the Catholics have another cemetery across the road that is uh, entirely uh, Catholic, and I was just trying to understand. I, it, the city goes back away into the early 1800s, and I'm just wondering if there's a historical component of maybe prejudice against Catholics, or as one person suggested, maybe the Catholics were just snobs to have their own cemetery. I, I was just trying to understand if you had any understanding of why the Yeah, Catholic- I do,
4: I do. So there is a a, a a National Historic Landmark in Alabama, in the city of West... Well, city, that's a bit of a stretch, in the <laughs> town of West Blockton, um, that was the, the Catholic Cemetery in West Blockton. And the reason that it was designated the Catholic Cemetery is because the dominant Protestant population would not allow the Catholics to bury their dead in the public cemetery. Most of the Catholics at that time were Italian immigrants who were day laborers and worked in the mines and things like that. Mm -hmm. And when they would come from Italy, and we're talking, you know, late 19th and early 20th century, they were corralled into um, something like a labor camp that locals referred to as the pen, and they were regarded with the same kind of opprobrium that racist white southerners had towards black people in Alabama. And the Catholics were not allowed to send their children to public schools, um, they weren't allowed to hold public office, uh, they weren't allowed to bury their dead in the public cemetery. And so Catholics had to have their own institutions to, to care for their own because they were excluded from the larger civil society. Um, uh, their burial practices are offensive to Protestants sure uh, because Catholics take great care uh, liturgically for the for the uh, remains of the deceased you know, they they're sensed with holy water and um, we, you know blessings and prayers are made over the corpse and you uh, know requiem Mass a funeral mass is set for the repose of the soul and you know Catholics will decorate the tombs of their dead with uh, with uh, uh, little indicators, and they will come up and offer prayers for the dead and other sorts of things that are noxious to Protestants. So that there's some there there is some uh, historical reason as well. Now I don't know if that's the case in your own diocese. I don't know the history of your particular cemetery, but those those situations do exist in in, in American history.
3: Tom, thanks so much for your call. Here's Eric, now a first time listener, driving through Oregon, listening on Modern Day Radio. Eric, what's on your mind today, sir?
5: Hi. So, I believe in God-created the Earth and universe. I believe that God will come down from Heaven and take us, take those, you know, close things out on Earth, I guess is a better term.
4: But does God know the future? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, the Catholic position is that time temporality is a creature what I mean by that is that time is a created thing it's a created mode of being and God is the origin of every created thing so God is the origin of time and if since God is the origin of time the creator of time God himself is beyond time he's timeless Uh, God doesn't change God is not subject to the passage of time God is not doing something different on Tuesday than he was doing on Monday God can't look backwards and see his own past. Any, any way that you can conceive of reality in a, in a, in a temporally fractured way is not applicable to God. And it would be, it's, there's an analogy that one of the church fathers came up with. He said, imagine that you, see, uh, you have a king who's mounted on a tower and he's watching a parade go by in front of him. And from the point of view of someone on the ground, they just see the ranks of soldiers passing by one after the other. But the king, from his vantage point, can look to the end and the beginning and see the entire parade in one fell swoop. Um, now, that, and that's a bad analogy because the king himself is subject to time. But if you can imagine a situation where God sees all of reality in one permanent instant, past, present, and future is one thing. That is God's relationship to temporality.
3: Hope that is helpful for you, Eric. Thanks so much for your call. Here's Marissa now in Georgia listening on YouTube this afternoon. Marissa, what's on your mind today?
0: Hi, I heard uh, Dr. Anders answering to a guy, uh, a person, last week about if a Muslim or Hindu uh, that would go to, or would have salvation, according to the Catholic, I don't know if it's teaching or doctrine, I was surprised to hear that he said yes, and my question is, how do you reconcile what the gospel say uh, uh, to this Catholic teaching? Uh, What is your position? Do you agree with that, that uh, any other religion, person from any other religion, can be saved according to Catholic teaching?
4: Yeah, okay, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So let let me give you an analogy to help you understand the Catholic point of view. Um, uh, There is an expression that my mother used a lot when I was growing up uh, that comes from 19th century America, and it refers to a spurious or false medical treatment, when someone offers you a drug that's claimed or purported to cure an illness, but in fact it's just a fake, and someone is selling it to you to make a buck, we refer to that as snake oil, right? Yes. And, and we talk about people who are snake oil salesmen. Mm-hmm. It comes from a period in the 19th century when there wasn't any kind of federal regulation of medications, and people would show up, you know, in their horse and and uh, wagon and they would be, they would be uh, selling cures, quote-unquote, for everything that would allegedly ail you, and they would claim all kinds of crazy ingredients, and snake oil sometimes figured into the ingredient list, and that's where the term snake oil salesman came from. Now, the medicine that is being offered by the snake oil salesman cures no one. Like, it's a fake, okay? But surely it sometimes happens that somebody purchased a bottle of snake oil from the charlatan salesman, Uh, consumed it and got well, not because of the snake oil, but in spite of it, Mm. right? And that is an analogy for what can happen to a soul that assimilates false religious doctrine. It is possible for a soul to come to a saving knowledge of God through Jesus without an explicit knowledge of Jesus. And in a way known only to God alone, that individual may reform their life, might be born again by God's Spirit and grace, and begin to love God and love neighbor, uh, even without explicit knowledge of the gospel. Now, there's no guarantee that that happens. Mm -hmm. And so we can't look at someone with a false religion and say, well, they're definitely going to go to heaven. We don't know that. What the Catholic Church teaches is that it's a theoretical possibility. But sometimes, those people are being sold snake oil. Now, there may be elements of truth in various religions, but there are definitely elements of falsehood as well. And so, someone might hold a false religious doctrine if that person is saved. It is not because of the false religious doctrine, but in spite of it. And sometimes, false religious doctrine can be a gross impediment to the life of heaven. So, say for example, um, you know, the suicide bomber who believes that he is doing his duty to God by killing himself and his neighbor. Well, that is not a salvific act. No. And that person will not be saved just because they followed their conscience, because their conscience was badly formed and it led them to do something objectively, horrifically wrong. So uh, in that instance, the, the the teaching of his religion about death by suicide is really going to prevent him from loving his neighbor and might very well keep him out of heaven. Okay, so this would be an example of a, a time when it really could frustrate your attempt to go to heaven. Sometimes for other religions will have elements of truth. If they say, hey, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't become intoxicated, care for the least and the poor among you. Those things would be elements of truth and sanctification. But we need the Catholic faith because if we're left to our own devices, we don't always know how to differentiate the true from the false. The real medicine from the snake oil. And by the way, you'll get no snake oil from us. Uh, well, not I certainly won't intend to give you any snake <laughs> oil. You know, I mean,
3: I've been known to make mistakes and. People kindly call me and say, Anders, you were wrong about that. Marissa, thanks so much uh, for your call. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. Couldn't get to Margaret in New Jersey, Liam in New York, Ed in North Dakota, Anne in Michigan. Please call us back tomorrow. We'll put you at the head of the line. On behalf of our great team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. We will see you tomorrow. Have a great day and God bless.